Hello and welcome to a little bit unlawful episode of Frequently Unasked Questions. I'm your resident historian, Michaela Springer, joined as always by my best friend and co-host, Becca Masick. Hey, Becca, how you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? Ah, uh, good. <laughs> so I have so a confession. A little... Yeah, take it away, Becca. <laughs> I messed up yesterday. We were trying to record this episode yesterday, and we got to the end of almost an hour of recording, and I looked at my little recording device and realized that I had 17 minutes recorded. So we're trying again. <laughs> yeah, so this is, this is take two. So Becca does know what the episode's about, but she's going to give us her original guess. Mm-hmm. And... Hopefully in the past 24 hours, you've forgotten at least some of this. Probably most of it. (laughs) That doesn't bode well for me in the future. (laughs) So, are you ready for today's episode? Yes. Okay. So today is called Where the Lame Can Walk and the Blind Can See. Okay. So when I first heard this title... Michaela said that if I didn't know where it was from, she would more than likely be disappointed in me. And she was. She was disappointed in me. Because the only thing that I could think of was like a healing (laughs) spring that also somehow had Jesus involved. And I was politely informed there was no Jesus. And so I went with healing spring. And that was my guess. And it was wrong. (laughs) Very wrong. (laughs) <laughs> so the lyrics come from the Dis- so they, they come from the song The Court of Miracles in the Disney movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Court of Miracles is exactly what we're talking about today. Mm, such a good movie. So good. <laughs> Definitely top 3 underrated Disney films. 100%. So an excerpt from Victor Hugo's Notre Dame de Paris or The Hunchback of Notre Dame as it was commonly known in English. There was a sort of sham soldier in a croix, as a slang expression runs, who was whistling as he undid the bandages from his fictitious wound and removing the numbness from his sound and vigorous knee, which had been swathed since morning in a thousand ligatures. On the other hand, there was a wretched fellow preparing with Kellandine and Beef's blood his leg of God for the next day. Two tables further on, a palmer, with his pilgrim costume complete, was practicing the lament of the Holy Queen, not forgetting the drone and the nasal drawl. Further on, a young scamp was taking a lesson in epilepsy from an old pretender who was instructing him in the art of foaming at the mouth by chewing a morsel of soap. So that's how Victor Hugo describes this mythical court of miracles. But the Corps de Miracles, or Court of Miracles, was a real place that referred to the mini Parisian slums made up of beggars, thieves, and sex workers. And these slums were found in, and I, yesterday I was woefully underprepared <laughs> to pronounce any of the French terms. She could not say which, anything. <laughs> nothing. And I realized that this is now two episodes in a row I've chosen a topic that's very heavy in the French language. And both times I realized that I slept through five years of French lessons. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Madam Johnson and Professor Kylie, I have failed you, but we're trying. Oh, Madam Johnson. Oh, yeah, I forgot you had her too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah, that one year that I decided to take Spanish and French. Yeah. Oof, bad choice. Yeah. So <laughs> these slums were found in Fidu Convent, Rue de Tempal, the Court of Jacin de Jusien, the Court of Jusien, Rue Street, Rue Saint Jean, and Rue de Lachelle. But the most well known slums are between Rue de Caire and Rue. Riamur. That one, I like struggled with the pronunciation and I tried. Still not perfect, but miles ahead of last night's attempt. So much better. So much better. <laughs> <laughs> and this most, the, the most well-known slum was called the Grand Court of Miracles or the Grand Court of Miracles. My French pronunciation's gotten much better. Yes. Still awful, though. Well, could be worse. Yes. Yeah, I have the I I have last night's recording, so I know it can be worse. <laughs> <laughs> now, to understand how the Court of Miracles got so big, we need to first look at Louis the Fourteenth and his reign. So, do you know anything about Louis the Fourteenth or the French monarchy or anything? So, the only thing that I vaguely recall about i think it was louis the 14th because there were a lot of louis in the french royal history at least 14 at least at least if not more down the road um i think he was the one who was like kind of a douche and i'm trying to remember because we definitely googled this last night he didn't build versailles he just partied no. there, right? He so during his reign, Versailles became kind of the principal house of nobility, right? For the that's French what monarchy, it was. yeah. And that's yeah. the literally the most knowledge I have on Louis the Fourteenth, and not because you didn't talk about him last night, but because my cats were being very distracting when you were talking about him last night. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. So, so Louis the Fourteenth was known as the Sun King, and he very adamantly believed in the like divine inspiration or divine right of the nobility, mm. and he believed that his power came from God and that it was his, you know, right to rule. Mm. And the homeless population of Paris skyrocketed under the reign of Louis the Fourteenth due to several years of poor crop yields, bitter winters, and an increase in warfare. Because Louis the Fourteenth, from like the brief reading I did, I'll do more about him at some point. He seems very important. But like from what I gathered, he loved war and he loved parties, which I mean, don't we all? <laughs> right. <laughs> so due to the shortage of grain and the reduced crop yields, bread, which was the staple of many French diets, became incredibly expensive, and families would often spend 60% of their yearly salary on this sweet, delicious carb. Mm. Dang. I, I remember that, and it still blows me away. 60%. Mm-hmm. 60% of their income on bread. I made bread the other day for maybe 15 cents. For two loaves. Like, maybe. Yeah. If I spend 60% of my salary on bread, I'm swimming in yeast at that point. Right. Like, like I could I could fill a pool with bread and just Scrooge McDuck it. Yeah. For real. 
For real. That's, I just can't. Well, now I want to swim in a pool of bread. That is the dream. That is the Maybe dream. Maybe not mine, but it's a dream. <laughs> it's someone's dream. And <laughs> now it's mine. What? <laughs> uh, at the peak of Louis XIV's reign, 10% of the population was destitute and living in slums, and he did nothing to help the poor. See, and 10% is a bigger number than you think when there aren't as many people around. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to do math in my head. It's not going well, so I'm just going to stop that. <laughs> I could be wrong. Percentages aren't my thing, but it seems like it would be a lot more people than you would think. Like, Oh, for sure. Yeah. it's. Yeah. I, I don't know what the population of France or Paris was during the 17th century, but I'm sure 10% is a lot. Yeah. What's the... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google things. We're just going to take a quick <laughs> Google pause. I can't spell what correctly. You know, we should come up with a little jingle for whenever we have to Google something. We should. <laughs> uh, we should. Okay, so to put it in perspective, because I, I just Googled this, the overall homeless population on a single night in the U.S. is about 0.2% of the population. Mm. So, I, I mean, people who live in bigger cities, that number will mean more, but... Yeah. We, on any given night, only have 0.2% of our population being homeless. And during Louis XIV's reign, 10% of his country was homeless. That's so high. That's so high. Yeah. And he was like, let's go to war and throw parties. And I, I read somewhere, I'm forgetting where... But in, in one of the articles, it said that one of the reasons why he threw so many parties was to kind of like put the nobility at ease due to an early uprising in his mm. reign. So he had, a, he had an uh, uprising like early on and then was like, I'm just going to throw parties to put everyone at ease, mm-hmm. which ended up resulting in more unease, just not yeah. at the higher levels. Right, right. Well... I don't have anything. Oh, is that, just, that's, just, okay. Well. <laughs> I was like waiting. I was like, well. Nope. All right. Well. Just well. <laughs> now that we've kind of set the base up, let's take a deeper dive into the actual court of miracles. So during the 17th century, France was marked by a surge of people moving into the city due to this instability and uncertainness of the rural life. All of a sudden, farmers had to eat their their staple crop, their like crop seeds during the winter. So they didn't have any crop anymore. And now bread is too expensive to buy. So this whole group mindset is, oh, let me move into the city. I'm sure I can do better and make a better living there. Mm -hmm. But not everyone thrived in this new setting. There was little employment available for the rural French refugees within the city. And while it was common for some cities at the time to have a slum district or maybe two, Paris developed 12 different slums. Yeah. Oof. That's these literally 12... six times the regular amount. Feeling really mathy today. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, no, I mean, one was the average. So 12 times the regular amount. Yeah. Wow. Some cities had two, but most really only had one slum district. And the Court of Miracles was at least 12 unique slums in the wow. city. Wow. At least. Wow. Yeah. Something that was, again, uncommon in Paris was that the Court of Miracles had an initiation rituals. It wasn't a society that was automatically welcoming to the downtrodden. You so you couldn't just prove your worth. be like, I'm poor. I need to hang out with you guys. You had to be like, I'm poor and skilled. <laughs> yeah. A lot of these were treated as like guilds and apprentice apprenticeships. Hmm. So for instance, with the Thieves Guild, new recruits had to undergo a two-part purse-cutting test. Not just one. They had... Two I always tests. I always feel like you're about to say something and then I pause <laughs> and you never say anything. It's because I have a very active listening face. <laughs> oh, solid. I don't. Yeah. So <laughs> the first purse cutting ritual for potential thieves required candidates to cut a purse covered in bells without making any sound. I, I've heard of that one before, except I've heard of it on jackets for like pickpockets. They line jackets with bells, and as soon as you can pick out of the jacket pocket without ringing any of the bells, you're ready to go out. And that's probably a, a modern test that developed from these early versions. Yeah. The second purse-cutting test, purse-cutting challenge, saw candidates dragged to a public marketplace or some other densely populated area and the master overseeing the test would instruct the candidate to pick several pockets or cut several purses. And once the master was satisfied with the target the candidate had acquired, they would yell thief and flee the area, leaving the candidate alone in an angry crowd. And this test was meant to establish if a candidate had the quick wits and fast feet required to stay out of trouble within the city. And this mayhem and chaos also opened up the possibility that other thieves and pickpockets could benefit from the chaos see and i think that's a really good test <laughs> because i could probably figure out how to like cut a purse without ringing any bells but if you were to take me to some crowded place and be like you're she's a thief get her and i had to think on my feet to be like no i'm not i couldn't do it <laughs> i'd be like Holding everybody's stuff like, no. <laughs> Me? What? I was just, th these fell on the ground. I don't, and I'm not fast. I can't run. So. <laughs> so you would fail that charisma check. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Your persuasion stat is zero. I could roll like a nat 20 and I still would get something negative. It would be really bad. <laughs> Oh, geez. <laughs> oh, buddy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Much of what we know about the Court of Miracles is due to Henry Saval. Henri Saval. You know what? I'm just going to stick with Henry. I'm American. I can't pronounce anything. Henry Saval. 
a contemporary 17th century historian who carefully detailed and categorized the day-to-day life of the court and its residents, including diagramming the hierarchies of how the societies operated and a categorized list of slang used by each group. So was he like a member of one of the courts or was he just like a guy that would go and visit and be like, this is what I've observed? It, so there's not a lot known about him. That's mm. kind of the case with most historians. We write things, but no one really knows <laughs> about us. Yeah. I'm lumping myself in this category now. Yeah. I mean, you've earned it. <laughs> so from what I could tell, Saval was, he went to, so I have to burp, this drinking soda was a bad idea. It's like I in was my watching chest. you do it, and I was like, that's not... <laughs> Okay. So from the from what I was reading, it sounds like Saval would just kind of observe and then also would make use of any archives and various records housed in Paris. But mm. it doesn't sound like he was a part of the court, at least not officially. Okay. Got it. Because I can't imagine if you're doing all these illegal, shady things, you want some dude just sitting there, like, making note, meticulous notes of, like, so what do you call this person? Okay, okay, okay. And what's your hierarchy? Who's your leader? Got it. Thank you. The French government? No, this isn't going to them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) As homelessness surged within Paris and slums became more populated, they also became more divided. The residents of these slums divided themselves into classes within slum social hierarchy. They then categorized themselves by the jobs they undertook, such as thievery, begging, or prostitution. And these underground societies began to resemble the autonomous societies you saw in Paris proper, with the thieves had the clearest leadership and a coordinated direction of who could steal and when. Like a job schedule. (laughs) <laughs> Basically, yeah, they they had a work schedule. Like, okay, you're in coordinate A, you three are in coordinate B, you four coordinate C. Let's not overwhelm coordinate B because if you have all these thieves in one area, you're gonna get caught. Mm-hmm. That's pretty smart. I mean, thieves are pretty smart, just as a general rule. Good thieves are pretty smart, as a general rule. <laughs> I'll say. Yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> Beggars also had a clear and rigid hierarchy with names of the hierarchy coming from beggars slang. And I have a pronunciation guide next to these words and I'm still afraid of saying them. I tried to translate them, but since they're slang, there's no like actual, since they're 17th century slang, there's no actual (laughs) translation. So let's try, shall we? Yes, do it. So the hierarchy within the beggars, and it's this is less of, of a hierarchy in my notes and more just of the different classes you could have within the beggar mm. society. There were the courtades de boutons, who could only solicit during the winter. The malingru, who faked illnesses for their begging. The marfaux, who were agents who worked for prostitutes similar to modern day pimps. And the Narki, who pretended to be injured or disabled for their begging, often pretending often pretending to be veterans of Louis XIV's ongoing wars. Hmm. 
And of the the different guilds, thieves were often considered to be top of the Court of Miracles hierarchy due to their regular wage from their employers. Yeah. Wait. Uh-huh. Wait. Did they... So, like, the, the top guys in the Thieves Guild, did they, like, ration out the earnings? Is that what happened? I think that's what happened. So, with the Thieves Guild, it was kind of like a job. And you, I mean, I'm guessing I'm spitballing yeah. here because <laughs> there's not a lot of research done on this. But from what I could gather, it sounds like, you know, they would go out and they would loot and thieve, mm-hmm. steal. I guess steal is the word. I like loot and thieve. <laughs> they would loot and thieve. And they would come back and then they would just kind of have like the day's earnings and then it seems like the bosses in the Thieves Guild divided it between the men. Mm. Okay. I mean, I think that's fair. Like, if you're going to have a social structure about it anyway. Yeah. Yes. So while thievery was probably the most illegal guild you could be in in the Court of Miracles, it also was the most stable High risk, high reward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, begging in in 17th century France was generally looked down upon unless you fell into one of three categories. Orphan, veteran, or disabled slash ill. Okay, so you couldn't just be like, I need money. (laughs) You could, but everyone would be like, no, go away. (laughs) They'd be like, "Mm, I do you though. But do you, though? (laughs) So as these groups were considered more worthy of charity and more likely to receive alms from wealthier Parisians, healthy French men and women would fake illnesses or deformities to make themselves appear more sympathetic and worthy of donations. Mm, That makes sense. Yeah. These people who spent their days on the streets feigning things such as blindness or epilepsy would return to their homes in the slums, and amazingly, their maladies would fall away as they entered their underground home, giving the name the Court of Miracles to these underground cities because... It was a miracle. Because it was a miracle. All of a sudden, to to quote... I don't know if I'm allowed legally to quote Disney, but we're going to quote Disney here. Um, Maybe you've heard of a terrible place where the scoundrels of Paris collect in a lair... Maybe you've heard of that mythical place called the Court of Miracles, Hello, You're There, where the lame can walk and the blind can see. Hence our title. Hence our title. That's where the title comes from. (laughs) And that's how the court got its name, because on the daily, or I guess on the nightly, these, these miracles were being performed, and all of a sudden people were once again perfectly healthy. And as a result of the increase in begging and homelessness in Paris, many of the wealthier Parisians fled to the suburbs on the far bank of the Seine to avoid having to see residents of the court. That just isn't the same today. (laughs) Which I think as a result caused the courts to kind of bloom 
people were leaving and they had more space to take over. Yeah. They were like, well, if you're not gonna (laughs) hang out here, then we are. hey Yeah. So I want to talk about the only King of Thieves to ever be caught by the French government. So clarified King of Thieves for me. So that was... So I tried... I like when I was doing the research, I was trying to find like the actual definition of King of Thieves, mm-hmm. but the only thing that came up was the Aladdin movie King of Thieves. Oh. Yeah. But like I said, so the the guilds had their hierarchy. And in the Thieves Guild, the leader of the Thieves was called the King of Thieves. Okay. So like And the he boss had man. he yeah, so the the boss of the thieves or the king of thieves and he had underlings and they were called i think ducks (laughs) but imagine that in a nice french accent this is just so funny to me that he gets to be the king he says and you are all my ducks That that might have been actually the third ranking because I think the the ducks ducks Geese? <laughs> were <laughs> they were kind of the foot soldiers in the thieves mm. guild. Okay, they were the muscle. Got it. So the only king of thieves to ever be caught by the French government was a man named Louis Dominique Bourguignon. Like pronunciations, beef. right? Yes. And he went by the name Cartouche. And he was a sort of French Robin Hood, a man known for his flashy publicity stunts, stealing from the rich to give to the poor. And one of his favorite areas of operation was the road from Paris to Versailles. So his feats include stealing over 1 million livres from John Law's banking company, gifting extravagant presents to beautiful women, issuing passports to nobility to give his gang a pass and stealing the sword from the regent only to return it with a compliment. I remember him from yesterday Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I still just, I think he would be just the most, um, I'd have a huge crush on him. Yeah. And how do you picture him again? Like, uh, (laughs) like Chad from High School Musical. Corbin Blue's character? <laughs> but like legal, not like under 18, but like, you know, in his early 20s after he drops out of college because he can't play basketball anymore because he hurts himself. Like, that's how I picture him. <laughs> but in tights, right? But in tights. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Very bright colored tights, too. Not just like Peter Pan tights, but like purple and like orange stripes. Like, that's how I picture him. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. All right. So Corbin blue, but in blue and orange tights is how Becca pictures Kartosh. Yep. And that's the only so, way you're going to picture him now, too. So you're welcome. Yeah. So your boy Kartosh was eventually caught and refused to say anything, believing that his guild would come rescue him. However, on the day of his execution, no one showed up and Kartosh asked the judge for a stay of execution, and suddenly was ready to talk and just spill all the secrets. My petty boy. I love it. (laughs) He 
apparently had informants all over France, including in the entourage of Louise Elizabeth, the daughter of the regent. What? Like, were they girls? Like, girl informants? I would assume. Yes, I believe so. They were in yeah, if she's entourage. in the... Yeah, if she's in... And she's... I think she's know. like a lady-in-waiting for okay. Louise Elizabeth. Yeah. That's sick. That's... Yeah. That's some power right there. My boy. <laughs> His words, however, ended up meaning little in the long run, and he was executed on November 28, 1721, at the age of 28 years old by breaking the wheel. And do you know what that... Do you know what that is? I... Okay, I remember it being really gruesome. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so what I pictured... <laughs> Yeah. And please correct me because I hope to God I'm wrong. <laughs> Is that, you know, when they do like knife throwing and they like tie the person up to the wheel and then they spin them and throw knives at them? I pictured that, but flat and they drop rocks on them. So you're h- half right. Okay. And I unfortunately had to learn what this was. So that means everybody else does because <laughs> that's how this works. But breaking the wheel or breaking wheel, basically it was when someone was put on a wheel and all of their bones were broken and they were just kind of, they were put on a wheel and they were, I think bludgeoned to death was one of the, oh no, that's so extra. That's so much more dramatic than I think anyone needs to die. And this was a torture method dating back to the Holy Roman Empire on a way to deal with pickpockets and highway robbers. Yeah, that tracks. The Romans were kind of fucked up. You broke the bones of a criminal and or bludgeoned them to death. It was one or the other, but it was always on a wheel. I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what's the psychology behind the wheel? (laughs) My first thought was, poor Corbin Blue. Poor Corbin Blue, right. Although, the account that you give of this man's life, it seems like there wouldn't have been any other way for him to die. Like, like I feel like probably the first couple of bones they broke, he'd be like, oh, ow, that hurts so bad. Like, <laughs> And so then they had to just keep breaking his bones because he was just a petty, sarcastic king of thieves. That looks like Corbin See, Blue. I and I feel the other way. I feel like he was kind of a little bitch. Like at first he held out, right, and wasn't gonna <laughs> rat on any of his friends, and then none of his friends showed up to his execution, and all of a sudden he's just petty and sad. And fragile on the inside and also on the outside. Well, I'd be sad if you didn't show up to my execution. <laughs> I'd show up to your execution. You'd <laughs> be like the only one there. It'd be great. <laughs> Actually, I don't I don't know if I could watch one of my friends be murdered. I don't know if I could do that. That's fair. I feel like if we stood together for a cause and I was dying for mm-hmm. that cause, then maybe. Yeah. But, but also, no, well, say, yeah. I don't, say I don't know. Say it's 1721, right? You were arrested for yeah. highway robbery. And there was like, we're going to break her bones on a wheel. I would say, I love you, but I'll see you later. And then I'd be like, hey. She helped me. I'd, what if I I'd, did it though? Would I'd cartoon? Would you drag me down with you? 
just because I wouldn't oh how rude 100 percent and be like I will see you in hell bitch saving you a seat (laughs) moving on because I don't want to be alone (laughs) Uh, moving moving on so the court of miracles thrived for I think about a hundred year 150 year period and in order to attempt and combat this thriving underground court, Louis XIV developed a police force under the recommendation of Jean-Baptiste Colbert. And Louis XIV established the office of Lieutenant General of Police and appointed Gabriel Nicolas de la Renie as the first person to hold this office. And de la Renie's task force was to protect and preserve the more beautiful portions of the city while inhibiting the growth of the Court of Miracles. Okay. So basically hold the perimeter and push him back yeah. if you can. And De La Renie held the office from 1667 to 1697, which is a pretty impressive feat. Yeah. Considering most people didn't live that long. <laughs> I think we've gone over this. We have. I'm not going to stop making the comment, okay. though. <laughs> While his tenure was impressive, what he did with the position was uh, horrifyingly impressive. He was known for his severe and extensive punishment of what he viewed as seditious writings and his brutality towards the poor, mentally ill, and prostitutes. He utilized houses of God, which were French hospitals originally built to tend the poor and sick, as places of incarceration for the poor and anyone he deemed immoral in cramped, inhumane conditions. That's rude. Yeah. I'm also really curious as to what he considered immoral. Right. Like, he was, it probably wasn't even anything that was that immoral. It was like, if you deviated a little bit from what the Bible told you you could do. My Google search is still up, and there's a video on YouTube of the breaking wheel, and it's horrific. It's animated, but still, it's, don't, don't look it up. It's, why? I'm going to send it to you. So while Louis XIV created a task force to attempt to deal with the Court of Miracles, it ultimately went nowhere, and it was only under social reforms during the reign of Napoleon that ultimately led to the death of the Court of Miracles. In the mid-19th century, Paris was incredibly overcrowded with a population density of one person in every three square meters. And soon after the overthrow of King Louis-Philippe in the February Revolution of 1848, a nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte was elected president of France, and one of his first goals was to begin rebuilding Paris. Fair. Napoleon's Minister of Interior chose George Eugene Hausmann to oversee the reconstruction and under his direction and what was known as the House it was a Hausmannian House the Hausmann Revolution, ah. essentially. Paris saw significant change in urban development and the slums were eradicated with social and health reform. What a concept. What a concept. Really gets my goat every time. 
And while the slums kind of went away in the mid-19th century, their legacy has lived on. Perhaps the most famous cultural influence lies with Victor Hugo, taking inspiration from historian Henry Saval's accounts of the Court of Miracles, Hugo wrote both Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, yeah. Les Mis was the one that got me. I still, I mean, I get it, like, when you think about it, but it's not as blatantly mm-hmm. obvious as Notre Dame. Yeah, it's, I think you made the point last night, you really see the Court of Miracles comparison in the Tenardis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and their whole lifestyle and kind of how they are. Yeah, and the the slum gang that Monsieur Tenardier ran mm-hmm. with in yeah. Paris, in the latter yeah. part of the book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a and a quote from the Hunchback is a gutter of vice and beggary, a vagrancy that spills over into the streets of the capital, immense changing rooms of all the actors of this comedy that robbery, prostitution, and murder play on the cobbled streets of Paris. Mm. That Victor Hugo really knew how to write. I just, I think he's really a lovely writer. I know I'm not alone in that. Like, a lot of people over the years have thought that. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. bears repeating. And so the Court of Miracles is an active setting in both Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame and in Disney's 1996 adaptation of mm-hmm. the film. Of the book. Yep. <laughs> Yes. Mm-hmm. I got it. We got there eventually. And I think people often forget that the the Disney film is based on Hugo's book since they take drastically different uh, tones. Oh, yeah. 100. I mean, it was a movie for kids. They couldn't be as dramatic as <laughs> the retelling of Victor Hugo. But Hellfire. I'm just going to throw that song oh, in true, there. Oh, though. I okay, so I recently, like, as an adult, rewatched The Hunchback of Notre Dame a couple times. Like, it'd been a couple years since I'd seen it, and I was like, mm-hmm. "This dude is straight up like, if she's not gonna have sex with me, I'm going to burn her alive." Yeah, I think in the book he does. Yeah, well, he they couldn't let him do that in the movie. He got really close, though. <laughs> he got really close. I haven't read the book. I want to, but... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, typical of Hugo, I think everyone dies yeah, in his probably. version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Hugo was not alone in his inspiration of the Parisian slums. The Court of Miracles is a setting in the video game Assassin's Creed. And I don't know much more beyond that. I just know that... Like, that popped up. <laughs> and I was like, oh do you mean this location in Assassin's Creed? And I was like, no, Google, I don't. And they're like, oh, do you mean this location in the video game Kingdom Hearts? And I said, no, no, no. I don't want to look at video games right now, Google. Show me real information. (laughs) Not right now. I'll come back to that later. God. (laughs) The most recent addition to the Court of Miracles fan fiction is a novel by Kester Grant called The Court of Miracles. And I have it right here. She bought it, y'all. I did. I was at Barnes and Nobles. Is that hardback? Yeah. Dang. <laughs> she spent money on yeah. it. <laughs> uh, it's, well, it's so new that the paperback hasn't come out ah. yet. Yeah. And so this is a summary taken from, I think it's Amazon, but in the violent urban jungle of an alternate 1828 Paris, the French Revolution has failed 
and the city is divided between the merciless royalty and the nine underworld criminal guilds known as the Court of Miracles. Eponine Tenardier, or Nina, is a talented cat burglar and member of the Thieves' Guild. Nina's life is midnight robberies, avoiding her father's fist and watching over her naive adopted sister, Cosette, or Eddie. When Eddie attracts the eye of the tiger, the ruthless lord of the Guild of Flesh, Nina is caught in a desperate race to keep the younger girl safe. Her vow takes her from the city's dark underbelly to the glittering court of Louis the 17th, Louis the 17th, and it forces Nina to make a terrible choice, protect Eddie and set off a brutal war between the guilds or forever lose her sister to the tiger. It does sound good. Roman numerals throw me. Right. I'm always like, okay, X is 10, V is 5, 1 is 1, 2 ones is 2. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that sounds so good. You're going to have to tell me how it is once you read it. I'm very excited. And I am realizing that the Guild of Flesh is probably the prostitute's guild. It's a really good name for it. The tiger is the pimp, isn't he? Gotta be. He Oh, oh, Eddie, look out. I mean, that was going to sound bad. I was going to say, I feel like there are probably worst, worse fates in life than being like the pimp's main chick. Probably wouldn't be great, but if your life already kind of sucks. All right. Well, between that rock and a hard place, let's move on. <laughs> The Chord de, de Miracles is also a Greek play that was performed in Athens from 1957 to 1958 and sets the historical French slums in Athens and portrays the residents of the play as people who are losing their home after their landlord decides to sell it. Mm. I actually would really love to see that. One of my life goals is to see Greek theater done in Greece um let's go let's go but i think it would be a really cool take to see something that was set somewhere else transposed Mm. to somewhere as ancient as greece they have so much history i think it would be really cool it would be fascinating the court of miracles has also made an influence in art with the french painter illustrator and engraver celestine nantiel Nantio, creating paintings based on the Court of Miracles. I want to look those up. I will send you the title. Yes, please. Because I love paintings that are done well about Mm. topics that I know. (laughs) And now I know about the Court (laughs) of Miracles. So, (laughs) Yeah. And I'll kind of close today's episode with a quote from Henry Saval about the Court of Miracles in which he called it a great cul-de-sac, which was stinking, muddy, irregular, and unpaved, where everyone lived in great licentiousness. No one had faith or law and baptism. Marriages and sacraments were unknown. Hmm. And that, Becca, is the Court of Miracles. Love it. Yeah. I tried to make it different from yesterday to kind of keep you on your toes. No, you did a really good job. You did a really, really... Um, and I tried really hard to think of a title (laughs) and the only thing that i could think of was something along the lines of like king of thieves master of none like a play on the like king of thieves (laughs) but or but also like jack of all trades master of none type one um 
But yeah, so I probably would have gone with like a a play on King of Thieves, Master of None as like a, like there were these and they did a bunch of things. I wouldn't have guessed it if that was the title. (laughs) Yesterday, yesterday I used a pass. We decided I get one pass every 10 episodes to not think of a title. (laughs) You decided that and I just kind of went along with it. Yeah, she didn't really have a choice because I had nothing. My brain was blank. (laughs) I almost wanted to go with, maybe you've heard of that mythical place called the Court of Miracles, but I know that you would get it. Yeah, I definitely would have gotten it at that point. Because, like I said, I I do love the Hunchback of Notre Dame animated film. Um, And so I know that the Court of Miracles is from that. (laughs) I just... It's not one of my top songs, so I wouldn't have picked out the lyrics if it wasn't in the title. Yeah. Which is exactly what happened. Top song, top movie, though. It's so good. It's so, it's yeah. such a good movie. I watched it with my grandpa, like, a couple months ago on Disney+, Plus, and then I went to bed, but he watched The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, and I came out to, like, get water or something, and I was like... The animation difference between the first right, and second say, movie is ridiculous. Drastic drop in quality. I was like, what happened? It made me very sad. Well, before we get too far into reminiscing <laughs> on the lost era of Disney, um, uh, that was A Court of Miracles. And remember, truth is stranger than fiction, and history is a whole hell of a lot weirder than you think. Fuck.